Hello, church, and welcome back to the Apostles Mailbox, where today we're talking about why red starbursts are the best ones in the bag. <laughs> now, when you hear that, what comes to your mind? You think, like, clearly red is the best, uh, or are you thinking, no, it's pink? Uh, maybe even a few of you strange ones think that orange or yellow uh, are the best. Um, I had a friend who used to call the, the orange and the yellow, we call them bag stuffers, just there to fill out the bag. Well, in your pursuit of a good argument as to why I'm wrong, if you were in the mood to argue, you might go to Google and you might, uh, you might take your color, your favorite color, and you would search, why are red the best starburst or why are pink the best starburst? Uh, but usually what we wouldn't do is we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't search for the question, why are red not the best starburst? Or why is orange the best starburst? Or why is, why is yellow actually the best starburst? Um, because we have this innate desire to prove ourselves right and to reinforce what we already know to be true. So it's like we come to this conclusion like, I know it's true, and then when that's challenged, instead of examining arguments objectively, uh, we go and we look for ammunition uh, to prove that we're already right. Uh, this is this is something that's it's a function of of what uh, people call um, a confirmation bias. That is, uh, we we tend to hear uh, things that agree with us and sort of filter out things that don't. We tend to go look for things that are going to reinforce our rightness instead of things that might challenge what we believe. Uh, and so we have a really hard time, some of us, and some of us more than others, I'd say myself maybe more than others, uh, we have a really hard time admitting that we were wrong uh, and actually growing, changing our mind to believe what's true. So today in our study of John, as we continue in John chapter 1, we're going to, I'm going to start actually with a little uh, look at confirmation bias. All right, so we're in, our main focus today is not cognitive bias, but I do need to take a little bit of a, a detour, if you will, uh, as we talk about life and light in, in John chapter 1, and I need to make a correction because I think there was some confirmation bias going on in my own head uh, last in our last episode of John, and that's this. I was taught in seminary that, that although the, the Greek grammar in in uh, John chapter in John chapter one verse one about the word being with God and being God uh, is is hard to translate that it's it's very artfully constructed and that really there's one way one right way to translate it and um, and that was according to um, something which I'd forgotten what the term was but I looked it up and it, it's called Colwell's rule that talks about how you deal with a, a particularly grammatical construction which I won't give you all the details because it's rather complex and you don't need to know them but at any rate I wanted to sort of double check my work and so I pulled out my Greek grammar and I pulled it out and and I looked it up and and they had Colwell's rule there and in fact they they even had John 1 1 as the example text to use to explain it and so they said, this is what it means. The best way to translate this is to say, uh, the Word was God and the Word was with God. Uh, the problem with that is that um, I, I'm not sure <laughs> that it was right. Okay, so in the Greek, uh, the second part of the verse says the Word was with God, uh, and it uses the article. It says the God, uh, if you want to translate it directly, which means that it's definitively pointing at God the Father. Okay, so we know that the Word was with 
God the Father. And then the second part, of the, the last part of the verse says, uh, God without the article. So it's it's indefinite. It would be like a God, perhaps you could translate it that way. Though I don't think that's how we ought to translate it. Uh, but God, uh, De indefinite was the word, and and in the unique trans the unique way there, according to Colwell's rules, for about forty years, it just was sort of uncontested that the best way to translate this was uh, the word was God. Um, other than a, you know a few people who had sort of theological reasons that they didn't want to say that, pretty much everybody just did that. But then the thing is, is that in in 1973, so about 40 years I think after Colwell's rule was published, the same publication uh, that published uh, Colwell's study where he made up this rule about the proper way to translate it, uh, and they published another article uh, by Philip Harner where he critiqued this, and he, his point was that actually that. That tip, that type of construction in Greek is is not. The, he basically said Colwell missed the point, and the point of writing something in that construction, he said, was to emphasize the quality of the of the second substantive of the second noun. Okay, and so uh, he's he made the point basically, uh, that instead of this being about establishing that the word was God, that the point, the reason it was written w w this way was to emphasize with theos first, was to emphasize the quality of God. And so if you take it that way, then you end up with what Harner says is probably a better translation, and this is followed by the New English Bible and the, the Revised English Version, and that's to say, what God was, the Word was. And so, from his point of view, the point of constructing the Greek in this way is not to establish the Trinity, if you will, but to, any, to equate the quality of the Word with the quality of God. And in, in order to say, in some ways, you might think of like uh, Hebrews 1, where Hebrews says that he was the exact representation of God's being. Everything that was sort of true about God was true about the Word. Okay, and so as I was doing more reading this week, and I found that I thought, oh boy, I just gotta, I gotta be careful, and I gotta correct myself because when we think something's true, like with you know what the best color of the starburst is, uh, often then we we only look long enough to find what we think is a good answer as to why we're right, and we don't keep sometimes keep studying and 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 try to find if maybe there's a reason that we're wrong. Okay, and that's somewhat unhelpful. Uh, and and one of the I think one of the the importances of this is that if you look at the word theos in the in John, it's used 82 times. Um, there's one use of it that's disputed if it was in the original text or not. But of those 82 times, uh, only three of them use the word theos in a way that doesn't specifically refer to God the Father. And so it's it's rather uncommon for John to use the word theos to not be referring to God the Father. And if you look in verse 1, and he omits the article and he says, um, and, and then you conclude, well, because the article's not there, he's talking about the Godhead instead of God the Father. Um, because it's so rare, you, you have to take the, the possibility that maybe 
maybe you miss the point. And so if the proper way of, of translating this is indeed, as, as Harner would argue, that what God was, the Word was, then the word theos in John 1 still refers to God the Father, and it's more consistent with the way John uses the word all through the rest of his book uh, to refer to God the Father and not to some idea of the Godhead. And so, um, and of course, the difficulty for us is this. If, if we are to say the Word was God, and we mean God the Father, then we're, then we're making the Word out to be God the Father. But, but nobody says that, right? <laughs> Jesus is not the Father. He's the Son of God. Um, and so, you can't say the Word uh, was God the Father, uh, so you can't translate theos that way. Um, and also, it, it, it's, it's a bit awkward to say the word was God, sort of in this generic Trinitarian sense, like referring to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, because, because the word isn't actually the Godhead. Uh, just like we wouldn't say that Jesus is the Godhead, uh, he, we, we would say that Jesus is part of the Godhead, right? And so, um, either ways that, that we typically, when we speak in English and we use the word God, we're either talking about God sort of in a, in a Trinitarian sense, we would talk about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or we talk about God and we're talking about God the Father. Like, neither of those two meanings works with the, um, with the statement, uh, the word was God. You understand? So, um, if you if you translate it the other way, I think it's it's more it's more logically consistent and palatable. I think to to us to say what God was, the Word was. Okay. So uh, that's. Uh, my detour through uh, confirmation bias. We we have an idea and we just want it to be true and we read it until we think it's true and then we say, oh, that's true. And I think that's what I did last week. Um, and uh, and thankfully, I had some other reading to do and I stumbled upon this and I kept reading and I went, oh, that guy makes a really good point. So uh, thanks to, to Philip Harner um, for writing that article and, uh, and hopefully it, it, it helps you sort of come to terms with Sometimes it's just a weird verse to read. So, all right, let's get into the text then. John writes, All things were made through him. And this him is referring back to the Logos. Now, it's perhaps unfortunate that we have this word translated him because this he here is a, is a, it's a, it's a pronoun. It's a, demonstrative pronoun uh, that could be translated as he or it or this. And so, again, if we're taking, if, if we've already in our mind substituted the name Jesus for the word, then we're going to translate this as him. But if we're holding our horses for a little bit, uh, then we might read uh, the word. The word is a is an object. The Word was in the beginning with God, and you might say all things were made through the Word, and without the Word was not anything made that was made. Okay, so we'll get to verse 4 in a second because there's some interesting things going on there. So, it's best, I think, uh, to, to think of this right now at this point in John 1 as it. <laughs> It was in the beginning with God. What was in the beginning with God? The Word. And all things were made through it. And without it was not anything made that was made. And in fact, one commentary I read, like, that's how the guy translated it. He said, uh, let's not get our, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Okay? So, uh, 
Unfortunately, what happens, though, is when you, when you write a translation of a text into another language, you want the person reading it to understand what's going on. And you in your head, as a translator, you have a broader understanding of what's going on. And so all of those ideas of what's being communicated, they come out, and sometimes they come out in the translation, and, and they, re they reveal your understanding as a translator of what's being said more uh, than perhaps what is what the author actually intended. So if I'm a translator and I'm translating somebody's words, I could mistake something they said, and, and then if I translate that mistaken understanding, I'll misrepresent it. Okay, but everybody, everybody is is going to do this at some point or other. And sometimes, of course, the translator just is like, let's just make this a little bit more clear. It's hard for me to understand, but now that I understand it, I can make it more clear for everybody else. But again, that's dangerous because if we've misunderstood, then everybody after us is going to misunderstand with us. Now, I want to point out something that's really cool here, okay? He says, all things were made through him. And uh, the word for made here is, is this Greek word, agenita, and it, the, the root of that is ginomai, and it is, a, it is the word to become or to be, uh, to be born, perhaps to be created. And uh, what's, what's happening here, this word is the word that shows up in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 1 multiple times. So if you read in Genesis 1-1, or if you read in Genesis 1-3, that, or, or in Genesis 1, that God said, let there be light, and there was light, the Septuagint says, and then uh, uh, became light. And it uses the same verb again and again and again and again and again. I think it's like some like 21 times or something. And so this word become shows up in the creation count. God speaks and then it becomes. Right? So when we look in John 1 uh, in verse 3, it says all things were made through, what are we going to say? The word, right? All things came into being with the same Greek word that the Jewish audience reading the Septuagint would have known all things came into being through what? Through the Word. Doesn't this uh, connect beautifully, of course? Uh, we, have, um, we have God then saying, let there be light, and then there was light, and it's the same verb. And so you have this great connection. Once again, we have in the beginning was uh, the Word, right? Just as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then when John switches to looking at creation, he's talking about the Word of God. And then, and then he makes this very clear link again that when God spoke, of course, the Word came into being. And then John says, uh, not all, all things were made through the Word. All things through, were made through the Word of God. And without the Word, then without the Word of God was not anything made that was made. Okay, now we're going to come to this uh, sticky part here. And it's the beginning of verse 4, and it's going to affect perhaps how we translate uh, this. Okay, so in the beginning of verse 4, it says, In him was life. And if you have footnotes in your Bible, if you have a study Bible, you might have this footnote. The ESV puts this fo footnote in and says, uh, or was not anything made, that's the end of verse 3, and that which has been made was life in him. And you're like, well, what does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. Uh, we're going to have to take a time out, though, and we're going to have to talk about a concept called textual criticism. Okay, and that doesn't mean we're criticizing the text like it's bad, uh, but it means this. 
So we have uh, many, many ancient manuscripts of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, we have them in different languages, uh, some in Latin, some in Greek, some in Hebrew. We got fragments in Aramaic, and we have a lot of them. We have tons and tons of them. Uh, thousands upon thousands of fragments. Some include whole books of the Bible, some include multiple books of the Bible, and we have a lot of them. Um, some are just little itty-bitty fragments that have survived from a destroyed manuscript. And the thing is that these manuscripts have differences. And you're like, differences? Yeah, differences. And here's why. If you've ever played the telephone, here's what you know, right? You know that you start with something, okay? And if you make a copy of that something, it might get distorted a little bit. So let's consider somebody just copying a square. And they copy it, but they kind of round off their corners because they're in a hurry. And then somebody else comes and copies that, and somebody notices, somebody makes a really good copy, um, and somebody else copies it, and they kind of round off those corners even more until it becomes a circle. Right? And then we have copies made from those copies. Let's say the first copy is still maintained. Uh, quite accurately, but the, the second copy, the one that's rounded off a little bit more, uh, becomes uh, one copy is, is properly preserved, and one copy gets a little squiggle on it uh, that looks kind of like a, a, a word bubble. Okay, and then we make copies of those things. And let's say that, uh, that somebody twitches, you know, and they copy the top one, or they 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 get confused or something, and they they modify the top one, and and then you have the the circle that's properly copied, and then you have three people copying from uh, the the word bubble, and so they all faithfully reproduce the word bubble. Now, if you only had, let's say, you only had these uh, top Let's say you only had these, these ones, and you would say, well, what was the original object that we started with? None of these are the original. And, and you can't do this. You can't just say, well, most of them ha have this word bubble, and so that's, this is probably the one, because this, you know, there's three of these, and there's only one of these, and there's only one of these, so it's probably this one. You can't just take the majority, uh, because... Uh, this is actually the worst of all of these options. And so what can you do? Well, if you don't just have these, let's say you have this group too. And you can look back and you can say, well, 50 years ago, or, or in round three of the, of the copying process, we had a rounded circle, or a rounded square, and we had a circle, and we had a thought bubble. Oh, okay, so we have the word bubble. I bet that just got copied three times over. Okay, so now we know we, why we have more of these copies. Okay, but what if you have all of these? What if you what if you have these as well? And and you know that these are older, maybe because somebody put a date on it, or or maybe because it's an older type of material. Then you would look back at this, and and you you could compare all of these manuscripts, and we would say, okay, this was some stage of copying. Well, this obviously was the one that got copied into that. And so, and that probably, out of all these, that one was probably copied into that. I doubt it would have been that. It, this could have turned into that, maybe. Um, but if we only had two really old ones and we just had a circle and a rounded rectangle, we could probably guess that these came from this, we'll call it what, what is called as a text family, right? They're descended from each other. And then these ones, they all originated from this copy. And then, let's say, 
you find the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. You find a really old, 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 old manuscript, and it has this copy in it. And then you look at that and you go, oh, okay, well, that clearly obviously became this. Uh, but we could see how somebody might round that off a little bit more and get a circle. And so this is probably the closest to the original that we have. Now, you may never discover this. And in fact, we don't have any of the original manuscripts uh, of the New Testament, as far as we can tell. Now, the oldest are, are a couple hundred years old in the New Testament. Uh, in, the old te in, in the Old Testament, we have... Uh, some pretty ancient copies, but they're also pretty old too. And so you may never know that it was actually a square there. So you can't definitively say, you know, this was this was the ticket. Uh, but you can say this is probably closer than this. So if you're trying to say, well, what was the original square? You would put down on your answer sheet something like this. Uh, you definitely would not want to draw this shape uh, because that you've determined where it came from. And so you know that that's wrong. Okay, so that's what textual criticism does. All right, now, oh boy, I just wrote on my stuff here. Uh, this is the, this is a fragment from John chapter 1 in the Sinaiticus manuscript. Now, Sinaiticus is a, is one of the oldest Greek manuscripts that we have. Um, and uh, as you can tell, it's, it's, it's in decent shape. Um, but what you can see here, Let's see if I can just get rid of some of those marks. There we go. Uh, what you can see here is you can see that there are notes here in the margin. And this line, I don't know if you can tell, if you can see it closely, it's a different color than the other thing. And up here you have sort of a, um, a little margin, like a little insertion or something, a little correction somebody tried to make. And so in our oldest, in, in, in one of our oldest available manuscripts, Sinaiticus, um, we have, uh, scholars have identified at least three or four different people who corrected the manuscript after it was originally written. They went back, they noticed problems or what they thought were problems, and they fixed them. And they did this in different colored inks and in different sort of handwritings. And so you can tell it comes from different people. But the point is we had one manuscript and it's had a lot of sort of adjustments over the years. And the question is, we don't know why, um, why all these adjustments were made, but presumably whoever came back later thought, eh, I think this manuscript was bad and I'm going to fix it. Right. So there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of study, um, that deals with the question of comparing manuscripts and looking at these edits and these notes, right, and trying to determine as near as possible what's back here, what the original was. And that's where text criticism comes in. Now, it's important for John chapter 1, at least right here so far, because if you'll notice, well, maybe you don't notice, uh, but all of these Greek letters are uppercase. Uh, Sinaiticus is what was called an uncial. It was written in all uppercase. They didn't have lowercase Greek letters at the time. And furthermore, uh, you'll notice, is that there's no spaces in between these words, and there's no punctuation. There's no periods or commas or question marks. And that's because simply they didn't use spaces and periods and commas and question marks. And so everything just ran together. Now, if you knew how to re read Greek and you were fluent with it, you could basically figure it out. But some of those questions of where a period or where a comma falls um, 
can turn out to be quite significant. Uh, my my mom's an English teacher, and she has a, a T-shirt that says it's got the joke on it. Perhaps you've seen it. Uh, it says "Let's eat, comma kids," um, and then it, it has the same sentence without a comma, and it says "Let's eat kids," <laughs> and uh, and then the the joke is that punctuation saves lives, right? So we have that going on in John chapter one in verse three. So at the end of this phrase here. In the Greek, there there is a phrase uh, that that was made ha gegamenen um, uh, or ha gegenen, and uh, it it's a sort of an awkward phrase, and it could kind of fit with the end of chapter three, and it could kind of fit with the beginning of chapter four. And when you look at the manuscripts, some of the manuscripts have it with verse three, and some of it have it with verse four. And so it's not absolutely certain whether that phrase um, belongs with verse three. And so you have these options. You could say that that phrase, what was made, uh, finishes verse Three, apart from the Logos, nothing was made that was made. Or you could take it with the beginning of verse 4, and then that would make verse 4 say, what was made in the Logos was life. And so either it's talking only about creation, uh, without the word, nothing was made that was made, or it's talking about perhaps the incarnation it's saying, without the word, nothing was made, but what was made in the word was life. And that would imply that what was made in the word was Jesus, and Jesus was life. And so, uh, it, you, it becomes sort of a, it starts to get at the interpretation of what, what's going on here. And so uh, the question then is, which one does it belong to? And you'll note that because there's a footnote here in your ESV and in your CSB, I didn't check other translations, uh, that have these alternate translations, you know that it's, it's within the realm of possibility that the right way to translate this would be the other way. Okay, and so that should cause us just to slow down again when we're sort of dogmatically decreeing what this believes. Um, and what we'll notice is that in John uh, 5, 1, 5, sorry, it goes on to say, okay, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so it is the light that shines in the darkness and if you're saying in him, that is, in the Logos was life, and the life was the light of man, then you're drawing a big equal sign that the Logos equals the light, and the light shines in the darkness. But if you have that other reading, what you're doing is you're saying that uh, what was made in the Logos was life. So Jesus was made in the Logos, and he was life, and that was the light, and and, and that life was the light of men. So... What was made in the Logos then shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay? So, we're starting to, to sort of, I don't know, fuzzy a little bit our understanding of John 1, and I think that's a good thing. So, what's going to happen then is uh, in, you know, in John 1, uh, we're saying that the light of man was clearly not John, we flat out have that. It says John the Baptist was not the light. Okay? 
He came to bear witness about the light. But what was the light, the true light, was something or someone coming into the world. Okay? Now, there is a connection here again. He was in the world, right? The light was in the world, and the world was made through him. So this would seem to equate the word with the light, uh, yet the world did not know him. We'll probably have to solve that question uh, a little bit later. But in the meantime, uh, what, we, what I wanted to do is why I wanted to give you a warning, okay? Well, first of all, let's just, let's just clean this up here. So, in, in verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there's two ways to translate this word, uh, overcome. And that could be to, to take or overtake or to master something. And in the Greek, it could have the same meaning of master as in English. So, in English, you could say, well, I mastered the, the French language. That means I, I totally comprehended it, I got it, I, I have use of it, I have mastered it, right? Or to master something is to, like, defeat it and conquer it and overcome it. And it's, it works the same way in Greek. And so, you could look at this, this statement and you could say, the light, uh, who we'll find out is Jesus eventually, uh, shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. So you could take this to say, like, the darkness was coming against the light and tried to overtake it and, and failed to overcome it. Or you could say the light came into the world, but the darkness didn't get it. It didn't comprehend it. It didn't master it. And, and of course, you know that when Jesus uh, preaches, then the, the world doesn't recognize him and it doesn't receive him and it doesn't, it doesn't comprehend him and it doesn't sort of master it. It doesn't get it. Uh, and so, both of those translations are possible. Um, but the point being, of course, is that although the light is there, right, and the darkness uh, is, is opposed to it, the darkness is not capable of overcoming it. It is not stronger than it. Okay, and of course, you'll notice there that you have these ideas of darkness and light. And again, when you go back to the Genesis creation account, what's there, right? It was dark. It was formless and void. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and he separated the light from the darkness. He made day and night. So, you have these major, major echoes uh, of Genesis right here, okay? So, back to our final warning then, and, and this is our warning, okay? We're going to get some church history here. Uh, this is God we're talking about, who John 4, 24 says is spirit. Jesus says God is spirit. And thus, I think it is very important for us to hesitate to sort of dogmatically define God. How are we as finite mortal human beings who, who only perceive the world sort of through our flesh, uh, how are we going to define a God who is spirit and who is transcendent and eternal and spoke everything into existence? And our tendency is to want to understand, maybe to want to master the, the topic, right? And to boil it down into its cliff notes and to put it on one sheet of paper to make God really, really simple so we can explain him to other people. But God is not simple. And if you simplify God, you're going you're gonna to mess it up. You're going to get something wrong. And yet, since, since the early years of the church, Christians uh, have been trying to sort of simplify the idea of God. And I think it's, a, it's really, it's a fool's errand, okay? So, if you look at traditional church theology, if you go back to the Nicene Creed, which was one of the, the first creeds that, that put this idea of, of the Trinity together, 
right? When they got together to talk about this doctrine, the majority of bishops who were there, uh, they opposed using non-scriptural words to define God. So, when you talk about Jesus being the very substance of God, of the same substance as God, uh, you are, in order to do that, you have to use words that the Bible doesn't, doesn't use. And so, the Bible never says Jesus was of the very same substance as God. And when these bishops got together and they were like, well, how are we going to make a nice creed about who Jesus is and who God is? And somebody said, well, yeah, let's, let's use this word homoousios. Uh, and, and, a, and a bunch of, actually, I think the majority of the bishops there said, but that word's not in the Bible. And how are we going to define God with words that aren't in the Bible? Uh, do we think we, we have a better grip on this than the Bible so that we can, we can use words to explain it more clearly than God did? Uh, and there was this big debate over how are we going to use non-biblical words to de describe biblical truth? Um, and, and as this debate was going on, unfortunately... Uh, what happened was eventually it wasn't it wasn't going anywhere, and uh, Constantine, who was the emperor who had called this council into order to get everybody on the same page, he just got directly involved and he said, "Okay, guys, here's what it's going to here's what we need to do. Here's how why this is a good word and why you should get on board," and uh, and then he got most of the people. Uh, to sign on to the statement. And uh, what happened, is what everybody knew would happen, is that a few people didn't agree to the Nicene Creed, and they were promptly exiled uh, from the church. And one of those people, actually, it became a capital crime to, to possess any of his writings. So you could be killed for having any of the writings of one of these guys who opposed this. Right, and so you have a group of people who are like, "Ah, we shouldn't use this word. We shouldn't use this word. We shouldn't use this word." Then the emperor gets in involved, and with all the power of Rome behind him, and he says, "You need to use this word, and you all need to be on the same page." And they get in line, and the few that don't get in line, they get harshly punished for it. Right, so it's not really a good look for our traditional doctrine of the Trinity. If if you just look at that, um, there was a, a bishop, not a not at this time, he hadn't even been born yet, uh, Gregory of Nancyanzen, who uh, later presided over a, a later church council for a while until he stepped down. Uh, but at one point he said, the highest clerical places are gained not so much by virtue as by iniquity. No longer the most worthy, but the most powerful take the Episcopal chair. So this is, this is mid to late 300s AD. The people who are at these church councils that are creating these doctrines and defining them and saying everybody needs to agree with these, uh, one, one of them, a very well-known and well-respected one, one who even presided over one of these councils uh, at the time, said, said, look, it's not the most righteous people who are your bishops these days. It's, it's those who, who can wheedle their way in, who are power-hungry, and who are just really not trustworthy. Uh, it's the powerful ones, not the godly ones that are that are the bishops today. He later said, and there's another quote by him, uh, he said, I have never yet seen that a synod, that is a gathering of these bishops, came to a good end or abated evil instead of increasing them. These are strong words. For in these assemblies, and I do not think I express myself too strongly here, indescribable contentiousness and ambition prevail. 
So he said, you know, sometimes we, we look at, at doctrines and we say, well, Christians have believed this forever and all the church councils sort of established these doctrines and so we need to sign off on them. And if we're to believe the, the testimony of some of those people involved in some of those very meetings, they're going to say, look, the people here in charge were not godly people. They're, they're power-seeking people. They're people willing to use any means possible, uh, necessary to get to the ends they want to be in power. Um, and that when the bishops get together, things don't get better. They get worse. Uh, and so he actually refused to go to to a synod at one point. Um, that was where what this letter was from. He was saying, I'm not going to go because there's just so much contention and ambition going on that nothing good ever comes out of them. Right. So, uh, you know, when you read that about church history, you're like, what? really? No way. Uh, but that's that's sort of the way it, it worked. And, and it shouldn't be surprising to us because if you think about it, these people live like uh, 200... 200, 250, 300 years after Jesus. Uh, that, that's as far back as our founding fathers or more. Um, they're way, way separated uh, from the foundations of the church. And, and then look at your own local church and say, you know, have you ever been a part of a church where there are people in leadership who just had no business being there? They were ungodly. They were ambitious. They just wanted their way or they were looking for power. Um, and, and, and if you've been around many churches, like sooner or later you've come to it. Like um, just because somebody's in power doesn't mean that what they're saying is true or right or good. And so the difficulty becomes, of course, if we take uh, if we take the conclusions that these guys supposedly came up with in these councils, and we make them authoritative, and then we use those decisions to to affect how we read and interpret and understand our Bibles. Uh, we, we very much risk that we're following the blind, that we're the blind following the blind, right? And that we've chased after people that we assume, because they lived a long time ago, closer to Jesus, that they were more wise and righteous, and when the testimony of some of their contemporaries is that uh, they weren't wise and righteous. Okay, so it's also worth noting that every time the church made one of these authoritative definitions, uh, it usually led to more questions and debates and conflicts and, and even paradoxes, of course. We'll talk about some of these when we read uh, John and we say, well, if this particular doctrine is true, then what do you do with this verse? And you go, oh, I don't know. It's no easy answer for that. Okay, so what are we going to say then uh, after our too long talking about this? Um Here's what we can continue to suppose, okay? The word in John 1 is the means by which God created everything. And you can see this, actually, in John in Genesis 1, where it says, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let the light be separated from darkness, right? And so, God speaks and things happen. The word in John 1 is the means by which God affects uh, the world, okay, and creates the world. And, and that's what John 1, 3 says, all things were made through the word. Without the word, nothing was made, okay? So, we also see here uh, in, in verse 4 that life has come into the world, and it is the light of man. It shines, okay? So, I don't think you could probably overstate this. Life Life has come into the world. Now, people were alive before this time. They, they lived and breathed and they had kids and jobs and, and whatever. 
But John John says that a, a, a kind of life entered into the world and became available, and it shines in the darkness. It is brilliant, and it is better, and it overcomes uh, the darkness that people lived in. Uh, and that is still true today. We talked about in our last episode, the gospel, the good news is that God has brought life to us uh, through um, through Jesus, which is what John is about. And then we can also understand that when light came into the world, darkness didn't get on board with it. Okay, so just because somebody opposes Christ doesn't mean Christ is wrong, and it doesn't mean that that Christ will be overcome by the darkness. Jesus is the ultimate victor. Darkness cannot, it has not, and it cannot overcome Jesus. When we get to the end of John's Gospel, of course, Jesus is crucified. He's put to death. The darkness seems to have its greatest victory, and then what happens well, you know, uh, Jesus rises from the dead and he proves that darkness cannot overcome the light. And so it's incredibly hopeful news when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I might also point out um, that if if our little very, very brief view into church history uh, is indicative of, of the trustworthiness of church councils and historical doctrines, as you might want to define them, uh, then that should cause us to go back even more uh, dependently upon the scriptures, right? Because the scriptures themselves, they predated these church councils, right, by hundreds of years. And so you come back to the Word and you say, all right, what has God revealed to men? How do we get as close to the source, Jesus Christ, as we can? Uh, and the answer is not to look at the church councils that came hundreds of years later, but to look back at the Word itself and, and to examine, uh, not with this confirmation bias of like, I just want proof that I'm right, but to examine critically these questions of, of uh, if doctrines came, where did they come from? Is there any reason to, to believe? that they were uh, faithful representations of the Bible or not. And also, as we read John, we're just gonna we're just gonna frankly say like if there's a passage that that seems to contradict something that we hold to, we're just gonna stop and say, well, I, maybe we're wrong. So uh, we're gonna come back to the Bible with extra expectation and uh, we're gonna give it even more authority when we recognize that men throughout history have distorted it. Uh, and you can't just say just because a lot of people believed it for a long time makes it makes it true. So we're going to come back to the Bible as our authority. Okay, so uh, that's all I've got for you uh, this week in John 1. I know we spent a lot of time talking about things other uh, than the text. We talked about confirmation bias, and we talked about textual criticism, and and uh, and we talked about church history a little bit. And the reason for that is because it's going to give us some background. We're going to come into some sticky questions later on in John chapter 1 that uh, if you don't have this sort of background understanding, it's going to be a little bit hard to catch up. Uh, so this is an investment that hopefully will pay off in the days and weeks and months and years yet to come, and I hope it bears good fruit in your life. So for now, uh, that's my encouragement to you. Look back to the Word. God has revealed himself to us in it, and uh, let's try to understand it as he intended us to hear it as we study through the book of John. We'll see you back here uh, next time on the Apostles Mailbox. Thank you.